ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Any history of the birth of Russian terrorism in the 1860s and 1870s is going to reference Russian literature. But as my guest Lynn Patek shows, the role of the writer in the phenomenon of terrorism is much deeper than we assume. The Russian writer was in some respects the very prototype of the terrorist, where their seditious words were viewed as audacious deeds, as violent assaults on the autocracy. This symbolic violence of the word in Russian literary culture set the foundation for revolutionary terrorism by fostering the ethos, pathos, and image of the terrorist and terrorism. Lynn Patek joins me to explain this literary history of Russian terrorism. Lynn Patek is an associate professor of Russian at Dartmouth College, where she researches how Russian literature shaped the emergence and practice of modern terrorism. She's the author of Written in Blood, Revolutionary Terrorism and Russian Literary Culture, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Here's Lynn Patek. So you have you have the your book, your first book, uh, Written in Blood, Revolutionary Terrorism and Russian Literary Culture, 1861 to 1881. And, and this examines your book examines the relationship between Russian literature and Russian terrorism. So I thought we'd start by just having you talk about what inspired you to write this book. Well, so the book was underway for a, a large chunk of my life, I would say. Um, so there were different inspirations at different stages. Um, but just to go all the way back, because I do have that genealogical impulse, it's definitely guiding the book. Um, I've always been interested in what scares us. Right. So basically, if you think of what scares us, well, you think, OK, terrorism, Russia, um the the gothic right so now i've gone all the way back um to my phd program at stanford um in slavic languages and literature and i had been working on gothic literature for a long time and was going to write my dissertation on terror and so just terror generally in russian literature and culture and the gothic and this hadn't been done so I was ranging very widely and um, trying to discover what terror meant, you know, just in historical, cultural, literary terms. And of course, I stumbled upon terrorism. Um, and this was especially true uh, in the early modernist period at the beginning of the 20th century, 
for the symbolists. Um, and what I realized as I tried to um, create an outline and a research plan for my dissertation was that there was no monograph on revolutionary terrorism and Russian literature, right? The theme of revolutionary terrorism and Russian literature. And given the fact that historians had um, had argued in, in the historiography of terrorism that Russian revolutionaries had invented terrorism in the mid-19th century, I thought, wow, it's strange that it's been overlooked um, by Russian literary scholars. And I realized that before I could write just my chapter on terrorism in the context of a dissertation on the Gothic and terror in Russian literature and culture, I would really have to do the research on the theme of terrorism in Russian literature. And so that's what my dissertation turned into. Um, and then I wrote that dissertation and it, it focused largely, again, on, on what was most obvious, this second wave of terrorism at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and that was largely because the um, modernists, this generation um, around 1905 and after, were able to write explicitly about terrorism as a theme. Um, and that hadn't really been possible before or to, or to a lesser degree. Um, so that's what I did in the dissertation. And then, of course, I had to revise that into a book. And when I, when I did that, it changed dramatically. Right, right. As they often do. As they often <laughs> for, do. For yes. good reasons, for a yes. lot of good reasons. So why do you, why, it, it's, it is, on, on the one hand, it actually is quite surprising um, that this, the relationship between Russian literature and Russian terrorism, the first wave, 1870s, uh, hasn't gotten that much treatment because in every book you read about the history, there's always references to the intellectual roots and the literary roots and its representation. So why do you think, why must there be a literary history of Russian terrorism? Well, I think that, um, it, I think that it's been overlooked for a lot of reasons. Again, we look for terrorism as we conceive it. Um, and what I discovered in revising the dissertation into the book and going back to the 19th century that was that terrorism was evolving. So we couldn't simply take a conventional um, scholarly definition of terrorism and apply it and find and see all that there was in the mid-19th century. So that's one of the reasons why we missed it. It was something that was coming into being, and so you would have to take a genealogical approach. Um, and also, I think when people think about terrorism and 19th century literature, they automatically think about Dostoevsky, and I did too. And of course, they think about demons. And this is only the most obvious, but when you know the history of terrorism, um, you realize, as uh, many historians have agreed, and Claudia Verhoeven wrote her book about um, Dmitry Karakozov, um, it really began with his failed um, attempt at Tsarocide in 1866. Um, and Dostoevsky was hard at work on crime and punishment at that time. Um, so, but the failure did not look 
like real to what we recognize as terrorism. Um, and then, um, you know, so we would have to sort of realize that this was an, a dynamic evolving phenomenon, but that writers at the time were keyed into it in ways that we looking back wouldn't have been. Um, so you really have to go back and do close, intensive readings of these literary texts um, in a way that a historian wouldn't necessarily, because historians have to deal with so many documents, so many archival documents, they're doing this extensive reading. Um, and literary scholars have the luxury of really doing these deep dives into texts. So, so I think that's why we need a literary history of terrorism. But, you know, it's rather surprising and that you start in, in this looking at this literary history of, of terrorism. You begin your book by discussing Alexander Radishev's journey from St. Petersburg to Moscow, which comes out in the 1770s, right? Um, no, a little bit later, 1790s. 1790s, 1790s. yeah. I don't know yeah. why I forgot that. So why... Why do you start your book with a discussion of uh, Radishev? What does this have to do with the history of terrorism? Well, I think that um, Radishev, first of all, he was recognized um, as a predecessor by the re revolutionaries. Um, and he really was someone who was alive um, and a part of the cultural ground of both Russian literature and of Russian revolutionary culture. Uh, so he was a presence um, and was relevant both to Pushkin's generation and then was republished in 1858 by Alexander Herzen. So there was this familiarity with his text um, and it was widely considered and has been considered by scholars as an abolitionist, right? An anti-serfdom, you know, a tirade against serfdom. Um, and I think it clearly is that. But aside from being that, it also provides sort of the first moral and even legal justification for the use of violence. Um, and this is often overlooked. And I think that Radishev is doing more than that. Um, the, the journey itself is an odd beast. If you look at it as a literary work, it's this um, styled as a travelogue, but it's a very hybrid work. It's satirical and sentimental at the same time and uses many different surrogate narrators. And um, as, as I was reading it, I, I came to see that what Radishev was trying to do, his project was tremendously ambitious. He was um, performing or trying to perform some sort of, um, he was anticipating the men of the 60s in their desire and their their aspiration to produce this new man. He was trying to produce new men out of his, his readers um, in a very basic way by getting inside of them and sort of um, physiologically and emotionally and morally reconditioning them to embrace this new set of moral values that focused on individual human rights and individual dignity. Um, and that would be even of the serfs. Um, and 
he draws on certainly a lot of the Enlightenment writings, and in particularly probably Diderot's anti-slavery writings, um, to sort of stir up this sense of outraged indignation against the violation of the human dignity of the serfs, and to arouse it even to the point of being willing to morally condone an act of violence um, against the surf owners. So, so I, I, I saw this as really important in laying these moral and emotional foundations for the justification of terrorist violence. And, and also, you know, the other thing I was thinking while I was reading this chapter, the prologue, um, is that um, the text itself is kind of a literary bomb and the sense of the treat his treat how he's treated the way Catherine the Great responds to it. It has a certain the word itself has a certain uh, violence, at least perceived as such by the authorities. So I was also thinking of that text in that way as well. Is that what would you say to that? Yeah, no, I think that is absolutely the case, and. Um, this goes back to my larger argument about what terrorism is and why um, it came into being in, in Russia, right, in, in the 19th century. And that was because of the way, or one of the reasons, I think, certainly not the only reason, I don't want to give a monocausal explanation by any means, but it was certainly the way that the government, and in this case, Catherine the Great, perceived um, Radishev's book, right, as being not just a book, but uh, an act and an assault on her sovereign authority. Um, and when you're blurring these boundaries between what is a word, uh, what is a book, and what is a deed, what is an attack, then um, you create what I say are the ideal acoustics for the emergence of, of um, the symbolic act of terrorist violence. Yeah, this goes to one of the, the things, at least as a non-literary historian um, or, or a critic, that there seems to be, in, in your story, there's two kind of literary missions uh, in the 1860s, beginning, you know, really flourishing in the 1860s. And one is developing what Dostoevsky called the new word. Um, and then the other is narrating or constructing, and, and here you put Radishev as, as a precursor, as the beginning of this, narrating this extraordinary man uh, or new man. So how did these two ideas of, on the one hand, the new word and the new man provide a foundation for terrorism, on the one hand, and the figure of the terrorist? So I, this was really Dostoevsky's aspiration or his phrase, the new word. Um, and he really... Um, sort of introduces it and foregrounds it in his novel Crime and Punishment, where it's this character, Raskolnikov, who is so intent on saying a new word. And um, that new word, as it becomes clear, is the murder of the old pawnbroker and her half-sister. So it's violence, right? It's an act of violence um, in Raskolnikov's case. Um, for Dostoevsky, what he meant by that and, and, and what he aspired to say was a new word. It would be Russia's word to the world, right? Um, so 
Russia would lead the world as a model, um, this universal model, this Christian utopia. And that was the new word that Dostoevsky wanted to say. That's what he wanted to bring into the world. Um, and he, like many of his contemporaries, his radical contemporaries, felt that it wasn't the older generations, the generation of the 1840s, which he would then satire um, in, his, in his novels, that would be able to do this that this was going to be a, a type of a new man. And um, Dostoevsky, like his radical contemporaries, attempted over and over again to imagine and to create um, this new man. And there are drafts of it in his notebooks. Um, and every time he tried to create it, um, the new man who would say or perform, if you will, the new word, it came out awry. Um, and even in the best case, in The Idiot, Prince Mishkin also um, fails miserably. So this is something that everyone realized was necessary. The new man, the man who was uncontaminated by the past, who hadn't been deformed by it, would be able to usher in, to manifest this new reality. And I think that a large part of the problem was that the writers who were charged by realist, by the radical literary critics to do this, they could never come up with convincing actions that could be represented in literary fiction uh, for their characters to perform. Um, and this goes back even to, of course, Oblomov. Um, and, and Stoitz is the foil here, who is able to actually do something. Um, but it was hard for, um, for writers to imagine what could be truly transformative um, that a character could do within the, um, within the realist frame, it always ended up being elided. It wasn't something that was able to be spoken, which created a space for readers and critics to imagine that it was some conspiratorial deed or some, some act of violence. Um, and that's what it ultimately became. But, but yes, definitely when I was imagining this entire evolution and this, this narrative, I, I was really tapping both into the trope, which was commonly invoked, of the monster Right. So um, and also, I guess, um, going back to my original idea for my Ph.D. dissertation, the Gothic dissertation. And I really came to see the creation of this new man monster in terms of like a, a Frankenstein narrative, you know, Dr. Frankenstein, i.e. the Russian author creating, you know, a monster. Um, and again, I was very aware that this was a trope that was in use at the time. So I think I try to signal to my readers that I'm approaching it with some degree of ironic distance, um, but it's definitely there. And um, it's clear, especially in the works of later authors like Sevalod Garshin, that they really did um, see themselves as being responsible as artists and writers for having created revolutionary terrorism. 
as you pointed out, Dostoevsky's importance in the literary construction of terrorism is, is really fundamental. And two of his novels, you know, Demons and The Brothers Karamazov, both draw on key figures in the history of the of Russian terrorism. The first being Sergei Nechayev, who famously writes The Catechism of a Revolutionary, and uh, Vera Zasulich, who attempts to murder the um, Saint Governor St. Petersburg and, and actually gets acquitted on trial. So I thought to, these are really two interesting. I actually didn't know about the Zasulich connection to Brothers Karamazov. Uh, so first, talk about the relationship between demons and Nechayev. Sure, definitely. But I do want to point out beforehand that um, Crime and Punishment and Dmitry Karakosov are also very important um, before I talk about Nechayev. Um, but, and, and in fact, I would say that uh, Raskolnikov goes further in his thinking, departs more from the old-fashioned model of tyrannicide um, as the model um, for terrorist acts and actually envisions something that looks closer to um, modern random mass terrorism. So, so he's very important. Um, but just in terms about of talking about um, Nechayev, so I've always found demons and the Nechayev connection a little bit problematic. And um, it's because, as I say in a, the book, Demons is and is not about terrorism, and Nechayev's act is and is not terrorism. And I think um, when approaching terrorism, one always has to be aware of the fact that what is an act of terrorist violence, what is considered terrorism, in quotes, is often in constructed as an act of terrorism. That is, you take an act of violence and it is interpreted in a certain way and certain constructions are placed upon it and it is therefore then accepted socially as terrorism, that this is terrorism. In Nechayev's case, he murdered one of his recalcitrant followers, um, Ivanov, and he, um, this was done um, as a murder that was to be covered up, right? It was conducted in secret by his close followers. The corpse was hidden. It was sunk in, in, in the pond beneath the ice. So this was an act that was never to have been discovered as far as anyone knows. Um, so it was a, a murder, a common murder. Um, and in researching it, um, I also found that when it was first reported in, in the press, it just appeared as a tiny notice at the very back of Katkov's newspaper, um, you know, just that this corpse had been found in the pond of the agriculture, uh, the, the academy there in the grotto um, and, and nothing more. And it took a while for them, uh, a few months to tease out the implications. Um, and then of course, Kutkov himself wrote these front page editorials um, that, that, you know, basically linked um, this murder to a, a vast revolutionary conspiracy. So, so that's the thing about, um, that's the thing that I really wanted to make clear in reading Demons, that we have to look at Dostoevsky's satire and skepticism toward this revolutionary conspiracy, toward Peter Verhovensky. This is really a faux conspiracy or a conspiracy of one. 
Um, and it is a murder that he basically coerces his followers. The irony there is also the fact that Nechayev himself was somewhat of a charlatan. <laughs> yeah, no, he was a complete charlatan. So I think Dostoevsky gets that, you know, he's spot on. Um, but also there were other representations of Nechayev that were that were also being made public at the same time while Dostoevsky was actually in the process of writing the novel and the novel was being serialized um, because, of course, the trial of Nietzsche happened before Nietzsche himself was arrested and extradited. So those representations of Nietzsche were in the public sphere. Um, but, but it seems clear that in the notebooks, um, Dostoevsky is really working out his own vision of Nietzsche as a charlatan. Um, so what I wanted to make clear in Demons is that it's not the acts per se, because Dostoevsky shows us a lot of murder and mayhem in that novel. A lot of murder and mayhem occurs. But um, the murders um, and one suicide, Kirillov, take place under entirely different circumstances. They're all novels of their own. Um, and it's basically the construction that Peter creates, the way that he links them together, um, and the fact that he is able to persuade or otherwise um, uh, convince others to accept this construction, that this, you know, this was a series of murderers, you know, that would be linked in the public mind in the same way that terrorist attacks would become linked in the public mind as having originated in some kind of revolutionary conspiracy. But Dostoevsky actually is constantly poking holes into that narrative um, so that the reader is encouraged um, to read against the grain of uh, Peter's construction and, and the social construction, the town's construction of these acts at the end of the novel. So, so what what do you think in terms of the question of terrorism? What do you what was Dostoevsky's you know point? What was he trying to accomplish by showing, you know, this this kind of haphazard or even, uh, you know, this guy. Uh, in in this provincial town, who comes and is, is is basically a charlatan and tries to create a larger conspiracy out of nothing, basically. Well, um, I think what was his larger point? I mean, I think that he felt that Russia and Russians provided um, sort of a very fertile ground for some type of charlatan. Um, with this cloud castle revolution coming in and roping them all into acts they would otherwise abhor. Um, th this is very different than what we see later um, in the people's will. Um, Nechayev's conspiracy and the way it's portrayed in Demons looks entirely different than what we see at the end of the 1870s in terms of the um, caliber of, of the revolutionaries and simply how seasoned they were. I mean, at the by the end of the 1870s, the revolutionary movement itself has matured. The revolutionaries have gone through a lot and they've tried a lot of things um, and terrorism for them be 
comes not the act that they have to commit um, in order to commit it, right? It, it seems like Nietzsche felt that he had to do in order to do, um, that the act itself became, was the ultimate goal. Um, for the members of the people's will, it is a strategy that they uh, alight upon after having tried many, many different things and being, again, very well seasoned in the courts, in prison, and in the underground. Yeah, I mean, the, for, for people's will, I mean, the, the turn to terror was basically, at least the way I read it, it's an act of frustration. I mean, they tried, you know, going to the people and they, they speak in these terms, like we tried to, you know, do peaceful agitation, we tried to appeal to the authorities, we tried all of these things, and we just got arrested and tortured and exiled. So basically, you left us no other option except to commit this type of violence. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the line they take. And I think that is a line that would have much more moral resonance with other audiences that they were trying to persuade. You know, when you look at individuals who are involved in the movement, I think that's true for a large majority of them. But, you know, it, it, it's so hard to say every individual is absolutely different and, and sort of driven by their own set of motivations. So, but yeah, in general, that, that was their line. So what about brothers Karamazov and Vera Zasulich? Yeah, so um, this absolutely struck me too. And I think it was the most amazing discovery for me um, in the course of doing the research and writing the book. So every, it was well known that Dostoevsky was writing the brothers Karamazov during this emperor hunt, right? The, the, this period of a year and a half or so when the people's will had um, explicitly committed themselves to regicide. And so the novel was being written at this time and serialized, but at the same time, literary critics who had written about it had never really looked at it within this specific historical context. Um, and although critics, and especially Joseph Frank, had acknowledged this context, nobody had looked closely at the Zasulich trial. Um, even though there is an awareness in the field, first of all, how interested, how fascinated and involved Dostoevsky was um, in the legal reforms and in the courts and how he had used his diary as a writer or of a writer as a platform for discussing in great depths and even influencing other civil legal and criminal legal cases um, that had been celebrity cases. So he had left off, um, he, he had taken a hiatus, a hiatus from writing his diary of a writer, from publishing it in order to devote his full attention to the brothers Karamazov at the same time that Vera Zasulich made her attempt on General Trepov in January of 1878. And then the trial um, took place at the end of March. And Dostoevsky scored for himself a press pass. Yeah, so he that's was, what I was trying to remember. Yeah, um, so he was able to attend the trial. And to me, this is just remarkable because this Zasulich case manifested all the issues that Dostoevsky had been wrestling with 
um, since Crime and Punishment and before. Um, and it even seems that Zasulich had stepped out of one of Dostoevsky's novels because here she is a morally scrupulous uh, female character, uh, but with nihilist beliefs, so in many ways resembling Raskolnikov, um, who undertakes this crime that goes against her conscience, she admits in, in, during the trial, during, during her statement, that she really could, it was very difficult to overcome these pangs of conscience, but duty impelled her to do this. She felt that she was morally obligated to do this. And Dostoevsky was so struck by this statement, he recorded that in his notebooks, and he applied it later to Ivan Karamazov. But actually, it was something he was wrestling with since Raskolnikov. Raskolnikov could never really solve the issue of conscience, whether one could murder in good conscience for a good cause. And, and so that was known, and there are a few other references that Dostoevsky made in the notebooks for the brothers Karamazov, but what really struck me when I went to back to read the transcript of the trial, which the presiding judge, um, Kone, A.A. Kone, had published, was, um, first of all, how amazingly dramatic the trial was, and, and literary. I mean, in its own way, a literary masterpiece. In some way, um, it, it, I wouldn't say it eclipses the trial, Dmitri's trial at the end of the Brothers Karamazov, but Dostoevsky had quite an act to follow. Um, and just in terms of the skill of particularly Alexandra, the lawyer for the defense. And Dostoevsky, I think he had this amazing um, ability to make auditory impressions. You know, it's, it's quite um, established in the Dostoevsky scholarship and through Bakhtin's theory of Dostoevsky's polyphony and dialogism that um, Dostoevsky was really an auditory author. He heard his characters um, and intoned their speech. And um, what I noticed when I was reading the, the trial transcript was, in fact, that Alexandrov sounded so much like Ivan Karamazov. In this scene, um, in the chapter Rebellion, which is actually a trial of God. Um, it's the first trial in the novel before the actual uh, criminal trial of Dmitri at the end of the novel. Um, Ivan stages this trial of God before his very impressionable, brother, uh, impressionable younger brother, um, Alyosha. And I noticed that some of the exact phrases that Ivan was using had been used by Vera Zasulich's lawyer, Alexandrov. And I thought this was just amazing because I didn't find them written down anywhere by Dostoevsky. He just remembered like the syntax and the speech patterns and the intonation. Um, and some of Ivan's most powerful statements are Alexandrov's statements. Um, so, so this really um, clued me in to the importance of the Zasulich trial and its central issues. Um, yeah, in, in the Brothers Karamazov. So one of the things about Dostoevsky is that he saw terrorism not simply as acts of individuals or political violence as acts of individuals, but saw it kind of as a 
as a social disease that emanated from or manifested from Russian society as a whole. Um, so how did Dostoevsky, and you, you point this out too in, in the book about he saw it, there's, there needs to be some sort of collective responsibility in terms of Russian society's responsibility towards this violence. So how did he understand society's role or responsibility in political violence? He understood it. He definitely understood um, political violence as a pathology. And I think first and foremost, a moral pathology that might manifest itself in psychological and physical symptoms. Um, so Dostoevsky is very holistic in this. Everything is um, in intertwined and inseparable. A, a human being a, a human individual is this holistic individual and if one part if if they are infected by an idea right that is morally corrupt um then they'll become psychologically and physically sick as well so he he, he definitely looked at it that way and then um he saw society as being fertile ground to the extent that it was susceptible to infection by what Dostoevsky increasingly came to identify as European ideas, ideas with a European origin. Um, and there, this malaise could take different forms. In demons, we see it in society, it's pervasive, um, and it even infects the the ruling classes. So we see that in von Lemke and Julia von Lemke, um, the way that they're affected by it, but also society, which in demons is um, very uh, not um, indifferent to it, but, but allows it to happen by their disaffection and passivity. Um, so that's in Demons, and, and then in the Brothers Karamazov, the way that I get through, or, or, or the way that I'm able to focus on this is through a character that I've always loved, and she gets so little attention in the literary scholarship. It's Madame Hochlikov, um, who is, uh, I think, insofar as the novel as a whole, it could be read as an allegory, which with each brother representing um, an estate. Um, so Madame Hoklakov herself, she represents Russian society, Obshizva, and the provinciality of Russian society and its susceptibility to all sorts of ideas. And through her, um, that is through her daughter's particular um, a particularly acute manifestation of this pathology where she takes all of these um, nihilistic ideas in this delectation of the spectacle of violence. Um, and um, she is literally uh, transformed into a totally pathological character, or one of Dostoevsky's most uh, pathological characters. Um, by this, this delectation of by the susceptibility to all of these ideas, these nihilist ideas, the desire that Lise has to want to live them out, 
to manifest them in her own life in the most self-destructive of ways. And then also imagining these spectacles of cruelty and violence that she uh, seems to take, or at least claims to take great pleasure in. I think that's how um, Dostoevsky is portraying his society's attitude and their responsibility for the terrorist violence that was taking place. Now, a lot of the literature you discuss, I mean, as you, you said about demons, right? It's it's about terrorism, but it isn't. And a, and a lot of the literature it, it doesn't is speaks about terrorism that doesn't necessarily exist, right? It doesn't have any any historical presence until really the mid the late 1870s, and of course the assassination of Alexander II in 1881. So what is terrorism's literary afterlife after the people's will assassinate Alexander II? I think that um, the, the assassination, the successful assassination, really put the kibosh on Russian sort of civil society and public life. And yet, at the same time, this was such a traumatic event um, for the entire society and for the artistic intelligentsia that the event was going to go underground in some way and artists would keep processing it, um, keep writing about it, and in the case of visual artists, painting it. So there were a few things. Um, Literary and other types of representations could go abroad um, as the remaining surviving members of the people's will who weren't imprisoned or executed could go abroad. So you had memoirists like Sergei uh, Kravchinsky who had wonderful linguistic and literary abilities and also a tremendous facility for cross-cultural communication and he was able to publish his profiles of revolutionary terrorists first in the Italian newspaper Il Pundulo, and they were tremendously successful, and then in the Times, and then compiled them into a book. So this really became the first, um, you know, uh, I want to say memento mori, but not. It became one of the first artifacts of this martyrology. Although, of course, the newspaper Narodnaya Voya had been publishing um, sketches and uh, martyrologies all along, I mean, even while they were still active since, uh, since 1879, 1880. So it wasn't a new genre by any means, but Kravchensky definitely had a gift for it. Now, in Russia, the situation was somewhat different. Um, Turgenev uh, had uh, written a prose poem which uh, was unable to be published when he wrote it. Um, it was inspired by Vera Sasulich and he wrote it in 1878, but then consigned it to the desk drawer. Um, but he had shown it or read it to so many people and it had been lined up for publication. So it really was very much in the air. People knew about this poem, The Threshold, um, and it spread by word of mouth and then radicals um, like the member of the People's Will Pyotr Yakubovich got a hold of it um, and was able to make uh, lithograph copies and distribute it at Turgenev's um, funeral in 1883. 
So that's how things got out by word of mouth and sort of uh, Samistat. Um, and at the same time, um, painters like Ilya Repin and um, writers like Sievalot Garshin continued to really process this um, national trauma in terms of um, other historical event, event, uh, events of, you know, so of national historical significance. So for example, um, it, it's well known that uh, Repin's painting, um, The Death of Ivan the Terrible Son, right, um, was a way of, of getting at sort of the, the bloodshed and the trauma that Russia had just recently experienced. And um, since uh, Garshin had served as a model for Repin on different occasions, um, and Repin had also used sort of a sketch of uh, uh, Garshin's face to visualize Ivan the Terrible's son. Um, Rep Garshin conceived of the idea of writing a story about a painter who was grappling with the same idea of violence. Um, and this painter alighted on the idea of painting a portrait of Charlotte Corday. Um, and so uh, Garshin's painter, La Patton, becomes obsessed with the idea of finding the right model for Corday. And in doing so, in finding that model, which he eventually does, he is able almost to bring um, the painting alive. This is a, sort of a Pygmalion type of story where um, the painter Lepotin falls in love with his creation, Charlotte Corday, and then brings her to life in the Russia of Alexander III. And so this raises, again, the questions with great intensity. What is the artist-author's responsibility for cre creating and, and propagating these images of conscientious violence? of morally sanctioned violence. Um, so um, that that story was published. Um, and yeah, so so these um, these ideas and these questions remained alive, but um, our writers and artists had to devise strategies by projecting them into the historical past instead of having them take place in you know, contemporary Russia. And, and finally, um, it's interesting that uh, you know Dostoevsky's starting starts out with with imagining or wanting the mission to be to have Russia to give something to world civilization, and as you begin the book with uh, with Marx speaking about the people's will and the so-called Russian method, um, it, it goes to exactly what you were saying earlier about this the monster, right? <laughs> They're imagining a new person a new man and that new man turns out to essentially with through the through terrorism through the, what russia offers the world uh at this point as this kind of monster so given that and the importance of literature and also the fact that you know terrorism is such a slippery thing for us to define and you note this as well how does the literary uh history of russian terrorism help us understand 
terrorism as a phenomenon? Yeah, I, what I have found is that it ends up being so ironic, um, isn't it? You know, I, I think my, my book is totally steeped in this sense of, of irony, um, that this is what they wanted to do and this is what they ended up producing, um, that there is, you know, now this um, terrorist on the world historical stage and it is identified as having originated in Russia and come out of Russia and um, and and that's the way terrorist and terrorism is perceived for decades as the Russian method. And uh, so unlike what Dostoevsky hoped to produce, but not necessarily unlike what his radical literary colleagues hoped for. So um, I think that the way, it, it was really interesting to me in writing an epilogue for this book to realize that our own uh, field, Russian studies, was nascent at this time in the late 1870s and 1880s and really arose in tandem with this burgeoning interest in Russia um, in, because, precisely because of the revolutionary movement and the emergence of nihilism and specifically terrorism because that was a spectacular method at the time when the um, mass media and international press corps was really getting going and latching on to this kind of sensationalist news that would resonate across borders. Um, and terrorism was also a phenomenon that crossed borders. So, so what happened then at that time, um, as this interest was increasing and escalating, was that there was no really solid bases of knowledge or Russia experts to provide any insight into where this phenomenon came from. So those journalists and diplomats and scholars, orientalists, who were based in Russia also came to understand the importance of literary culture in Russian society. And they were aware of the acclaim of Turgenev and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And so they read these novels as Russians themselves read them to understand, to reckon with, to gain insight into what was happening in their own society. And then these uh, Europeans, these foreigners um, who doubled as Russia experts were able then to funnel the insight that they had gained from reading these Russian literary works, um, their, their insight into nihilism and the emergence of terrorism in Russia. So literature became this privileged source um, for them to, to understand terrorism. And I think it, it should be for us as well, not only because Russian literature does track the emergence of terrorism um, and its evolution in a much more complex and nuanced and ambivalent way than um, than we would often look at it. You know, just reading a history or reading you know government sources, you know government documents, or just from our own preconceptions and experience with contemporary terrorism. That was Lynn Pate. 
an associate professor of Russian at Dartmouth College, where she researches how Russian literature shaped the emergence and practice of modern terrorism. She's the author of Written in Blood, Revolutionary Terrorism and Russian Literary Culture, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, and more importantly, take a moment to write a review on iTunes because this puts us in contact with more people and more potential listeners. Or the best way is just recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!